Hello, and welcome to Surroundscapes, an audio and video podcast series featuring a diverse collection of interviews with thought leaders from around the world, addressing the general subject of the future of business. This content is curated by Blue Sound Professional and focuses on the role of the oral and visual senses in creating unique, delightful, and compelling experiences to stimulate business. This second series of Surroundscapes is focused on the future of the workplace. I'd like to introduce as a part of this, Evan Benway, who is Managing Director of the Sound Agency. You might remember in the first series on the future of retail and hospitality, we had another person from the Sound Agency, Julian Treasure, talking. Evan is here to talk about something different, specifically around the workspace. So welcome, Evan. Hi, Graham. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. So to start with, I'd like you to tell me a little bit about yourself and your history and what led you to this career in the sound agency. Sure. Well, as it did for so many of my colleagues in in this industry, it all started with music. Um, Both of my parents were classical musicians. My father's a, a classical pianist. My mother's a cellist. Um, My sister and I grew up uh, learning all instruments, um, and ultimately I I studied jazz. That became my real passion musically. Um, So music, sound have always been uh, really exciting territories for me. Um, And in uh, 2012, I began researching how sound affects people indoors. Uh, This really came about organically as I was working for the first time in an open plan office for a large audio technology company, and I couldn't believe how unproductive the environment was. The space was explicitly designed to facilitate collaboration and focus, Um, and while it was really good at the collaboration part, I, I was able to get quick access to people and information, it was really a challenge to focus. So I started learning more about uh, why that was, learning more about uh, the physics of sound, um, the science of how people respond to sound, psychoacoustics, and then combining that uh, with technology to see how we could improve the soundscape for the benefit of people indoors. Ultimately, that led me to learn about uh, more about Julian Treasure, who you mentioned a, a minute ago. And uh, as I decided to, to leave the larger corporate world to to work with a smaller company with a real focus on sound, um, we combine forces. Um, we've since then launched a new product, Moodsonic, uh, which is designed specifically to optimize the indoor soundscape for people. Excellent, thank you. You mentioned you're a jazz musician. What, what instrument mm. or instruments do you play? I'm a drummer, so I, I, I've been a percussionist since the beginning. My first instrument was the piano. Um, and and ultimately fell in love with the drums. It's sort of the the, the emotional uh, volume control of, of a band, which I love. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. I'm also a drummer, so uh, I'm totally with you on that. Um, so going back to what we were talking about, explain about um, biophilic soundscapes and the science behind them. Sure. Well, um, as much as I love that term, I'm mindful that there are sort of maybe two terms that need to be defined within that, biophilic soundscapes. Um, Starting with biophilia, biophilia refers to a hypothesis, which is strongly grounded in science, 
which posits that people have innate responses to certain types of stimuli. Um, generally speaking, people have innate preferences for natural stimuli. Um, some of this is really commonplace and, and most people understand it and it's made its way into our building design. An example of this would be natural light. It's now commonly understood that natural light is very beneficial to people. In fact, it's critically important for our health and well-being, and that depriving people of natural light has some awful consequences. Other examples of this are views of nature. It has a host of benefits for people working in offices, also for people in, in hospitals and in recovery, um, where research has shown that people who have views of nature um, make fewer requests for pain medication because they feel less pain um, and they recover from routine surgery faster. So that's biophilia. Soundscape is a, is a general term that refers to the sound that we hear around us. Um, in most workplaces, it's uh, the, the soundscape is characterized by a general lack of background sound. Um, so a lot of good work has been done over the years to introduce uh, absorption and quality acoustical design to lower the overall background level of the building. In some parts of the world, particularly in the U.S., um, that also the soundscape typically includes uh, some air conditioning noise. And what biophilic soundscapes refers to is uh, the notion that the soundscape of a building might be optimized for people, and that do, in order to do that, we want to apply that science of biophilia. It's been really fascinating to see, to see over the past few years that that science of biophilia applies to sound as well. Historically, in acoustical research, uh, particularly looking at cognition and how people focus and, and are productive with different types of background sounds, silence was always used as the gold standard. So you'd give someone a cognitively demanding task, give them silence to complete that task, measure their scores. Then you'd expose that same test subject to uh, a different soundscape. Um, you might have background chatter or um, industrial noise, and you'd see their productivity scores decrease. Silence was always the gold standard, and that's where the best scores were, were received. A few years ago, researchers in New York at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute had an idea based on the biophilic hypothesis, um, and their hypothesis was that people would perform better with a natural soundscape. They were right. Um, and what the research showed was that uh, test subjects performing these cognitively demanding tasks in the presence of a nature sound, in this case, it was a, a stream with some bird song, they did better uh, even than the test subjects who were exposed to the silence condition, showing that as it turns out, silence is not the gold standard and that people actually perform better in a biophilic environment in general. So biophilic soundscapes uh, refers to applying that science, taking natural soundscapes and bringing them indoors uh, to allow people to function better. I understand that that's what um, Mood Sonic is all about. So can you give us a little more detail about just how Mood Sonic works? Sure. Yeah, well, so Mood Sonic uh, specifically refers to um, our, our new technology from the sound agency designed to produce soundscapes indoors. Um, this is done for offices um, as well as for, for hospitals um, or educational environments. It can be applied to a number of different environments. Um, 
the way it works is we, we have some hardware software system um, designed to generate soundscapes. Um, so we use generative soundscapes, a term that, that you may be familiar with from uh, having spoken to Julian. Um, what that really refers to is that we don't play loops, um, but rather we use algorithms to create soundscapes in real time. There are a few reasons we do this. Um, one is that given our focus on biophilic sounds, so on natural soundscapes, um, we really can't get away with looping sound. Um, we tried, um, but found that test subjects would pick up on loops, even really long loops. I mean, we've tested loops of sound that were a week long and found that people would pick up on uh, the repetitive sounds and really didn't like it. Um, so it's much better to use sounds that introduce some randomness uh, within bounds, and, and that's how we work. Additionally, um, this allows us to make changes to the soundscape that we're creating in real time. So um, in a workplace or, or in a hospital, as you might imagine, uh, the, the soundscape within changes quite frequently. So we may have um, an empty workplace one minute, and then we have uh, one or two people or 20 people or 50 people. Um, those changes within the environment really demand that the soundscape changes in a number of ways. Um, when we have no people in a workplace, for example, we, uh, the reverberation, so the sort of the, how, how much echo there is within the building is relatively high. When it's then filled with people, you have less reverberation. We might also want to know uh, more information than occupancy. We might want to know the overall sound level within the space. So we've designed Mood Sonics so that we can receive all of that information about the environment, whether it's from a microphone or an occupancy sensor or temperature or really any digital sensor input. And then we can cause the soundscape itself to change in some way. We might increase or decrease the volume of the soundscape. That's sort of the first uh, order of complexity. We might also change the quality of that soundscape in some way. We've used that in the past to, for example, to notify a receptionist that someone has just entered the space using uh, a bird song um, that's hidden within a chorus of bird song that, that no one else would notice but that receptionist. Um, or we might use it to indicate that now that we don't have a distracting level of speech or conversation, it makes more sense to optimize the soundscape in the building for relaxation and restoration. And we might move to a soundscape that's based on uh, gentle ocean waves. Those are some examples of how we change it in real time. Wow, that's fascinating. There's a few things there. The whole idea that people pick up on a week-long loops was something that, uh, that, I, that, that blew me away. I know that there's been talk recently in retail environments of, of employees getting really fed up of loops of songs. Um, but I was thinking more in hours, not, not a week. So it's amazing that we can pick up that. Um, you mentioned about the way that you um, adapt algorithmically the soundscapes. And I was really fascinated that you embed signals in like for the receptionist. But when you're working with different companies, does the character of the soundscape change for the company? I, I don't mean the algorithmic changes you're making, but the, the basic soundscape that you start with. Yeah, it does. So, so generally speaking, from, from a psychological perspective, 
Um, the more control that you can give people over their environment, the happier they'll be. That definitely applies to sound. And the more control we can give people over their soundscape, the, the happier they are with it. That can be really challenging to do if you have 100 people in a shared space. You can't give everyone the, you know, the, the, the ability to change the channel. But what we can do is create something that's, that's a little bit bespoke. Um, and we've done that and, and uh, found that our clients really love it. So the sound agency is um, based out of the UK. Uh, for the most part, I live in Austria. Um, our initial soundscapes that we created for this for this product uh, were based on on uh, British and European types of soundscapes. Um, we began working with some clients in Australia. In this case, they're in Western Australia. Um, and as much as they liked it, they wondered whether we might have something that was more regionally appropriate. Um, and we worked with them to develop a soundscape that, in this case, built upon five different habitats from an island off the coast of Western Australia called Rottnest Island. Each of the habitats has slightly different sonic characteristics. You can imagine deep ocean surf or some slightly inland saltwater lakes, woodland and heath areas. So, so a number of different soundscapes that are then constructed with a sunrise to sunset schedule for that environment to give people the impression that they're on a tour of the island. And we've done that, of course, to choosing soundscapes that have particularly beneficial sonic characteristics. So in this case, it's deployed in, in an open plan office. Um, and we want it to, we want the soundscape to have some effect at covering up distracting speech. So we focus on soundscapes that have uh, some sonic energy in, in some of the higher frequencies that cover up that uh, otherwise distracting speech. Having taken all of that and put it together into something that's much more regional and much more local uh, was a huge hit um, with this client. And we're always looking to, to do that. Hmm. That's, that's great. And, and also that point about the soundscape being appropriate for the time of day is a, is a really interesting point. When I first came across this, I was thinking more of this term biophilic sound masking. And when I was thinking of it, in my mind, I was thinking more like conventional sound masking, where you're using noise to actually completely blanket over the ambient so that your ear takes everything out. But then when I came to ISC and heard your demo, it was very different to what I was expecting because the level of soundscape was much, much lower and you weren't aiming to cover the noise, but you were aiming to kind of smear the noise so you couldn't hear specific words, so you didn't focus on that background noise. And that was really powerful to me because it led to much lower level of soundscape and a really great experience. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Well, um, so, so sound masking, which you mentioned before, um, refers to... Um, an approach uh, in which you, you try to cover up distracting speech um, using uh, a broadband noise. And the goal is to increase privacy of those talking or to, or to reduce the distraction of someone who's in a space exposed to distracting speech. It works for that purpose. Um, so by, by covering up another sound with sound, 
um, you can you can reduce its distraction, uh, reduce its distractive power. Um, but it's a fairly blunt tool, um, and its sound is uh, is is comparable to a loud air conditioner um, or airplane cabin noise. Back when we used to fly on airplanes, you know, we can all remember how good it feels um, not to have the sound of that airplane cabin anymore. And, so, and we shouldn't really be surprised then to find that, that studies have shown that that type of noise and exposing people to that type of noise for long periods of time is stressful. It causes a, a cortisol response, which is the fight or flight hormone associated with stress. So we don't really want to do that. And we certainly don't want to expose people to that type of sound for long periods of time. Um, and as you said, we, we uh, have taken a different approach where we look at particular frequencies. So um, if I were to, uh, this doesn't work very well over, a, over an audio recording or a call like this, but if, if you can imagine me speaking um, to you in a whisper, um, in which you hear primarily my consonant sounds and you're hearing less and less of the vowels, um, you can still make out just about everything that I'm saying. So, so it's still clearly intelligible. Um, and that's because a lot of what uh, I use to articulate my speech is the consonants, uh, consonant sounds. Um, and a lot of the, 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 the energy there is in the higher frequency range. This is one to four or 5,000 Hertz. We found that we can use natural sounds to introduce a bit of sonic energy in those frequencies in a way that's really not fatiguing at all. Um, those types of sounds are present in a babbling brook. Um, you hear them in, in, in uh, certain types of ocean waves. Um, and we can introduce those into a soundscape that for people is really only pleasant. Um, but that has greater masking effect than a conventional masking sound. So that's been our approach there. And then as we discussed earlier, we create schedules and uh, we build our soundscapes so that they can change based on input from the environment or user input. Meaning that we don't, even if we have optimized a particular soundscape for masking, we may use that masking power when needed. So at a particular time of day, or when a sensor tells us that there's a lot of uh, distracting speech happening. And then we create, we move to a more relaxing soundscape, say based on those rottenness island waves uh, when appropriate. The other thing that, that I think is worth emphasizing, I think you talked about it before, is we're used to the sound masking qualities of nature. So when you're walking through a field or a forest and you, you have that background um, you're used to that, whereas we're not used to, or we've we've become used to it with air conditioning, but we're not used to being in these loud, steady-state noise environments of planes or air conditioning. So I've got to believe that, that that's stressful to us versus reassuring. Absolutely. And, you know, with, with biophilia, you know, it can become a bit of a, a buzzword, but it's actually based on some really good science. And in particular, it's what, what it's getting at is evolutionary biology. Um, and the, you know, the reason we have these types of preferences that we do is, is, is uh, because of the environments in which we evolved. And um, you know, the hypothesis uh, explaining why we have such a powerfully positive response to water is that it signaled all kinds of good things for homo sapiens, you know, the, the presence of food um, and drinkable water. 
Um, and that, you know, for example, birdsong, uh, birdsong indicated the absence of predators in the environment. Um, so yeah, when you say we're used to these types of sounds, what we're really talking about is, is uh, evolutionary timelines, right? And we are, um, mm -hmm. these, these, these types of sounds signaled environments for which we were well fit and adapted. Um, whereas air conditioning uh, and the sounds of the building are, are very new on an evolutionary time scale. Um, and, and it's also a very new thing. You know, we, prior to the COVID pandemic, um, research was showing that we were spending upwards of 90% of our lives indoors now. That's also a very new thing um, from an evolutionary perspective. And one of the reasons I think it makes good sense to try to see how we can bring nature back into our buildings. Yeah, that makes that makes a load of sense. So let's zoom out a little bit. You've talked a little bit about this in the introduction, but can you talk a little bit more about general trends you've seen regarding workspaces, for example, um, you know, the trend towards open offices and then maybe back somewhat from open offices, and then how technology and AV technology is influencing all of that. Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, you're, you're right. There's been sort of a long-term trend moving increasingly towards open offices, um, although that, that term uh, is, is really quite broad. And, you know, I've heard people on one side of the fence for years, you know, on open offices, open offices are good, open offices are bad. And I'd say we, we probably need uh, to, to refine our vocabulary a little bit there because within open offices, you have both offices that are good and those that are bad. Um, and what I would say is really clear is that the trend towards densifying offices and trying to pack as many people uh, into a square foot or square meter of real estate uh, has has been called into question recently, um, and is and is and rightly so. Um, but I think the trend towards offices that are open that promote information sharing that are used for collaboration, but that also can facilitate focus. I I, um, I think those are here to stay. Um, What's some other trends that have become really clear to me in looking at all of this is, is designing for a quality of experience that was historically not required of the office and that was maybe more familiar to people in, in hospitality. Um, so as, uh, as, as designers of real estate, as architects um, and, and, uh, and facilities managers and um, directors of real estate um, look at their workplaces uh, they increasingly want to create offices that that feel like anything but an office, right? Um, because among their goals are trying to attract talented employees um, that, that will want to work for that company. Research has been really clear, starting with the millennial generation, that um, young and talented employees uh, consider the look and feel of the workplace in choosing whether to work for a company or not. And, now more than ever. Uh, I'd say all of that has also been a part of the trends towards designing for well-being and effectiveness. Um, these are major uh, and I think inexorable trends in, in the workplace. Uh, well-being prior to COVID was, was top of mind um, and, and now uh, more, more so than ever. Hmm. So um, you've begun to, to talk in, in what you're saying about this this recent COVID nineteen pandemic, and 
How do you feel that it's influenced these trends? Has it accelerated things that were already there or changed some things? I think it has. Like, as I said, I think it's accelerated the, the trend um, of designing for well-being. So companies that in the past may not have thought about this now have to. Um, I think it's also really increased the responsibility of, of people with real estate in their title who now um, have to do a lot more than they did before. They have to understand the occupancy of a building. How many people are in here today? Um, in the past, they may have gotten away without knowing that, and now you, you, you absolutely must. And they're uh, increasingly responsible for IT and, and you know, an intelligent building in ways that they weren't before. So that's certainly, I think, been driven by COVID. I would say, too, just an understanding of the importance of the, of the building and of the workplace. That's better understood now, thanks to COVID. With, with many new things, whether it's an innovation or a disruptive uh, pandemic like this one, there's often a bit of a hype cycle in how people understand it. And at the beginning of the, of the COVID-19 pandemic, we can remember people prognosticating that the office was over, we'd only ever work from home, you know, the truth is out, and people are are just as productive working from home as they ever were in the office. Um, I think now we've come down a little bit from the, the peak of that hype curve, and people realize that, yet, wow, yes, there is benefit from being able to work from home. Um, we also miss each other. We, we miss being able to be in the same room with our colleagues. Um, that there's some benefit to being in uh, a space with other people, being able to collaborate, that um, that these uh, uh, weak ties and the ability to have informal conversations with people, that that's where so much innovation and, and uh, productivity really comes from. I think COVID has helped us to better understand that and will probably change the way we think about the workplace. Um, so many companies that, that uh, prior to COVID-19 didn't allow people to work from home, now will. And that means that people have a choice um, whether to come into work to not, or not. And if they are going to come in to work, uh, they, they better have a good reason. So if I'm going to go in, maybe it's because I want to collaborate with my team today. Um, and the workplace needs to respond to that and be sure to be able to provide for those functions. Yeah, yeah. I think um, you touch on a number of things that that I've been thinking about. Although your use of the the, the hype cycle analogy with the mm. pandemic is a is an interesting one that I haven't come across before. Mm. But the um, I agree about this densification of the workspace and and basically people companies using the premise of the productivity of open office to squeeze more people in. And I assume that with social distancing and, and the like, that's going to have to be reversed to some extent because that densification now signals risk. Is, is that something you're seeing? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You, uh, so, I mean, to make this real, we work with um, one, of, one of our clients right now in London is a, is a technology company. Um, and they, we started working with them prior to the pandemic, and they were, um, they had 50 people in this particular office, and they were designing the office to accommodate 100 as they were growing. Um, today, they have 12 people in that space. 
um, because having a hundred people in that space would be terribly irresponsible and would not uh, meet the social distancing requirements that they have to. So, so absolutely, uh, I think it will help mm -hmm. help to reduce that trend towards densification. Um, from my perspective, that's that's really only a only a good thing. I mean, the densification trend was was a was a fairly ruthless um, economic logic, right? Just about trying to reduce the the cost of real estate per employee. Mm -hmm. um, whereas mm -hmm. uh, the research on environmental psychology and looking at workspaces for, for decades has been pretty clear about this. Um, there are there clearly are benefits to open plan and um, people don't, generally speaking, uh, people don't want offices that close them off from their coworkers, uh, but there, there ought to be a line there. We shouldn't be over densifying um, and COVID has has uh, created a new requirement uh, about that. Yeah, it's interesting because some of those other things that people put forward for uh, benefits of open office, mm. uh, like collaboration, um, and you actually see often in open offices people wearing headphones and things mm. to to get that privacy, um, yeah. and and rather than it encouraging collaboration and communication. It's actually um, doing the reverse, and and I believe there have been a number of studies now that say people are less collaborative in open offices. And I wonder about this idea of putting a biophilic soundscape into a place to so that you don't have to do that in order to 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 get to get a comfortable environment, and that that might be able to then uh, enhance collaboration because people aren't wearing headphones and that sort of thing. True, true. I mean, I, I've, I've met with so many um, workplace strategists or heads of real estate who've taken me through their um, their workplaces and pointed at the, the, the employees. Typically, it's a tech company, and you see the employees there who are walling themselves off from their from their colleagues using noise canceling headphones. And uh, and they said, "How do you help me solve this problem? People aren't collaborating." Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I'm, I'm familiar with the problem. Um, it's been a couple of years uh, since I've seen a new study on this, but but a few years ago, Gensler, the largest architecture uh, firm in, in the world, did a study looking at this. Um, they studied several thousand knowledge workers globally, um, and they found that what you said is happening. So um, specifically in the new workplaces, which are increasingly designed for collaboration, collaboration is actually down um, significantly. They mm -hmm. also found that the, that the top driver of that was noise, um, mm -hmm. people being distracted by others in their environment, and also not having privacy. Uh, I think most of us are probably familiar with it. You go to have a chat with a colleague in an open space, and the awareness that everyone nearby you hears everything you're saying is, can be a little bit awkward depending on the topic of the conversation. So it's you're right, it, it's had a negative impact on collaboration. Um, I will say, though, again, there's good research demonstrating some of the benefits of open plan. Um, the U.S. GSA, General Services Administration, they're the largest landholder, landowner in the world, um, did quite a large study where they identified, again, information flow to be a critical benefit of open plan. It's much slower in private office environments. Um, and and uh, aesthetically, uh, people want the open plan office. It's also it also has a, lo a load of benefits when you look at environmentally friendly design, as to the extent that you can take down walls 
and uh, increased daylighting within the space. You're reducing your, your energy consumption. So there are good reasons to design for open plan. Again, I say, I, I think uh, we'll probably see our vocabulary evolve over the years as, as uh, the term open plan just contains so much, so much variance within it. Yeah, I, I agree. You also talked about um, the quality of experience, and, and that's a really fascinating subject to me as we look to come, at, come through this pandemic, as, as we do. Um, and as you mentioned, companies are finding that people are just as effective or maybe even more effective sometimes in, in their own offices at home. And for people for whom that is convenient, and there are lots of people that, that it's not convenient, you know, where they don't have big homes and their kids are at home as well, and it's tough to do a home office. But many of us um, have managed to create quite nice home offices. We don't have the commute anymore, so we get more hours back in our day. And um, I've heard a lot of talk about companies having to entice people back into offices in order to get that collaboration that then team spirit that people want. Mm -hmm. And it seems to me that creating experiences in offices that are difficult to create in home offices um, is the key to at least getting people in some of the time during the week. Is that what you see as well? Yes, I, I completely agree. I think that, um, and you've seen this in, uh, at least I've seen this in, 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 some of the top tech companies uh, for over a decade now. Um, those types of companies, many of them anyway, have um, experimented with allowing people to work from home, uh, have operated on trust for a lot longer than some of the other companies have. And so there you saw this happening even prior to COVID, where people were given a choice whether to come in or not, whether to work remotely or not. Technology has really enabled us uh, to work from anywhere for some time now. Um, and I think that once you do that, you find, uh, lo and behold, people are conscientious and productive and and work uh, from home. Um, but but yes, that to get them then back into the workplace, uh, you you have to have a focus on experience. You've got to create a place that um, that people want to come into. Um, the reality too is that we're not you know we don't do factory work anymore, where we come in and spend a certain number of hours per day. Uh, producing widgets, you know, knowledge work uh, is much more difficult to quantify. Um, and as HP found uh, decades ago, you know, pro their their productivity measured in terms of innovation, new products, um, increased by by having donuts uh, in the cafe, right? That by having people uh, mingling who otherwise wouldn't, and having those informal conversations at the water cooler in the hallway. That you know that that drove innovation. Um, companies want to have that happen, um, and to do so, they've got to create environments that facilitate more than just sitting at a desk. That facilitate collaboration. That facilitate focus. Um, that facilitate working out at the gym. I mean, we we do so much more than just work now in the office, um, and we've got to create spaces that that provide for all of those uh, experiences. Yes, I, even a number of years ago, I remember visiting an office uh, from a company called Oticon in, in Copenhagen. Mm -hmm. And um, this was one of the first open offices where people didn't actually have assigned um, seating. So they, they basically came in and, and 
formed ad hoc little groups around projects they were doing. Mm-hmm. And even before technology had evolved, they'd found ways of doing that. And they were also a paperless office. So they basically shredded and scanned and shredded everything that came in. But one of the things that they've, and they allowed their employees to work either at home or in the office, and they didn't even have enough spaces for all of them to have be in the office at the same time. But one of the things they did very mindfully is creating these spaces where people could mingle and get coffee and get snacks and encourage this kind of informal bumping against other people and that the the communication and ideas and conversations that that happen in that ad hoc way. So it'd be interesting to see when we're able to go back into the office and and I work at home um, and my my head office is several thousand miles away from from where I where I live. But now I can't go to it. It's in a different country. It's in Canada. But I am really looking forward to seeing everyone again. So it'll be interesting to see when we're allowed to go back into offices where that pendulum ends up with people you know how many i'm sure people won't won't work from home all of the time but i'm also sure they probably won't work in the office given the choice all of the time do you have any thoughts about where that pendulum is for most companies well i i agree with you i think that people that given choice people will 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 find the right balance. I think the key thing is that people now have choice. Um, I was lucky enough to work for that type of company for a number of years, uh, years ago, prior to the, to the COVID pandemic. Um, and so I experienced the benefit of that, being able to work from home or a cafe or, or wherever it was that on a given day, and then to come into the workplace if needed. For me, that was optimal. Um, there were so many companies that hadn't experienced that prior to COVID that now have. I think that's uh, you know that's that's been a clear takeaway for for just about everyone. I, I yeah I think different companies will find uh, a different balance as we start to to reemerge and and come back into the buildings of the world. Um, but yeah, the bar to get people into the workplace is going to be a lot higher. So Evan, as we wind down this podcast a little bit and uh, get towards the end, I'd like to finally ask you about your thoughts about business moving forward, and specifically about any advice you can give to our core audience for this podcast, which is AV integrators, as to how they can come out of this pandemic as strongly as possible. Sure. Well, I, I, I think that AV integrators have the potential to bring a lot of what we've discussed here to uh, the buildings of the world. So, you know, we've talked a lot about workplace, but so much of this could apply to to other types of environments, whether um, in hospitality, in hospitals, um, hotels, education. Um, and AV integrators, I, I, I think, have the potential to use AV as a tool for designing for well-being and for designing for effectiveness in spaces. Um, using sound systems, for example, for more than the conference room or for announcements. Um, we can use it to deliver uh, a quality of experience that's that, that people haven't experienced before. We can use it to address some of the biggest problems that our, that our clients have um, related to effectiveness and designing uh, a high degree of experience, as we said, but also as we come out of the pandemic, designing spaces that people feel comfortable to re-enter. Um, 
in addition to the horrible loss of life, uh, COVID-19 um, attacked our confidence about contact with other, with other people indoors. And I think that will take a bit of time to overcome. Um, and how can we use uh, AV? How can we use audio in the built environment to reassure people, uh, to give them um, a sonic communication that the space that they're in is clean, is safe, is of high quality. Um, I think there, I think there are big opportunities there for for the for the world of AV, um, and that would be my my advice. Great, thank you so much, Evan. And I can't stress to to our audience how effective the soundscapes at Mood Sonic um, produce are having heard them myself and being in spaces with them, it really is transformational. So Evan, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way of contacting you? They can um, reach out to us directly at info at thesoundagency.com. That's probably the best way. Um, thanks so much for saying what you said about our soundscapes. One of <laughs> One of our challenges right now is that the demo locations that we've set up in various geographies are uh, variously um, viewable and experienceable. So, so um, another way that people can get a sense of what Moodsonic is and what these sounds sound, soundscapes um, sound like is by visiting our website at moodsonic.com. Um, we have a content glossary there. People can have a listen and they can use that website to get in touch with us as well. Excellent. Those are great tools. So thank you very much, Evan. I found this fascinating. In fact, I always find talking to you fascinating. I hope everyone's enjoyed this. Um, if you liked it, please go on to your podcast site, to Apple Podcasts, to Spotify, wherever you're listening to this um, on, and give us ratings, give us comments. Go to uh, our website, bluesandprofessional.com. All of the podcasts are available there. Our contact information is there. And please come back and listen to more of these. We've got some fascinating people from all around the world talking. And we've got a whole series of these mini-series with different aspects of how to build business back again. So I'd really encourage you to come and listen to some of those and also to go back and listen to some of the previous episodes from season one and also from this season, season two. So anyway, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for listening and hope you come back and listen to some more.